We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginners' all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match, and programming was the fuse, as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Best Christmas ever. Part 1. The first time I touched a computer, I was 10 years old in 1980 at my friend Eric's house, who lived down the street. Eric's dad was a manager at Hughes Aircraft, the same place my dad was a draftsman. They knew each other, but there was an obvious white-collar, blue-collar divide between them. My dad said Eric's dad was kicked upstairs, which I think implied he was incompetent, so they promoted him. It always sounded like sour grapes on my dad's part to me. My dad was into dirt bikes and fixing cars. Eric's dad was into technology, sci-fi, and building his wife a kiln and his son a two-story clubhouse. My dad showed me how to fix a roof, do a brake job on a Datsun 710, shoot guns, and how to set off fireworks without blowing my hand off. He never built my mom anything I can recall, but he did once hang a tire from a tree so we could swing on it. My dad was into the Civil War, cowboys, ghost towns, and discovering the past. Eric's dad showed me the future. I can't imagine why now, but Eric's dad let my brother and I, a grimy set of twins with rat's nest hair and threadbare clothes, touch his shiny, brand new Apple II computer. He let us play games like Ceiling Zero and Aztec, but he did something more. It was Eric's dad who showed us how to enter and execute our first real, honest-to-God, Apple basic code executing on its MOS Technology 6502-based processor. It went something like this. 10. Print. Hello World. 20. Go to 10. When the program ran, the rippling green phosphorescent text scrolled on the black background of the Apple II monitor. It went on and on forever, and it appeared to be the stuff of gods to me. By typing the code Eric's dad showed us, then typing run and hitting the enter key, we had essentially created what appeared to be life itself. And just like those same gods, Eric's dad showed us how to smite that life down with a simple Control-C key press. I was gobsmacked. I was hooked. Like a young blue whale that breached the water surface for the first time, my eyes instantly opened to a world I had no concept of even existing before. A world I never wanted to leave, but a world I rarely got the chance to enter. You're going to end up on Skid Row. My dad was serious. My brother and I were 11 years old, listening to my dad as we drove the Datsun 710 station wagon to a Motel 6 in Escondido, California. This was a weekend trip, 
the type of which we'd taken for the past few years. It constituted our family summer vacations in totality. If you don't find a decent job, you're going to be living on the streets. It was a scary thought living on the streets. The hot, sticky vinyl of the Datsun seats that I hated so much felt like a dream compared to how I imagined sleeping in a concrete sidewalk. In the summer of 1981, my brother and I were video game obsessed twins who lived in a household that avoided or could not afford most modern technology and conveniences. My dad's job at Hughes Aircraft was shaky and we made ends meet based on how many overtime hours he was awarded there. This meant most luxuries were off the table. It was lucky then that we both loved arcade games that we could play for 25 cents apiece. However, we also coveted the Atari VCS, a machine on which we could play unlimited video games, but was so far not within our grasp. When we had money, we spent most of it at the arcade or in shop fronts, playing coin-operated video games whenever possible. Most of the time, those games are made by one company, the aforementioned VCS creator, Atari. When we were not in the arcade, we were on the lookout for any kind of video games, favoring the Atari VCS system set up in the TV departments of various stores like Fedmart, Gemco, and Sears. When we found one, we could play a few rounds before the salesman ran us off. On a trip like this one to San Diego, we would hopefully find an arcade at our miniature golf course and beg our dad to take us there. He would usually oblige. You can't make the same mistakes I made, my dad continued. We listened to his conversations enough to know exactly what he was talking about. Our father had a degree in fine art from Syracuse University, and after spending 25 years trying to land acting roles in TV, he now held a job doing drafting work for an aerospace company. If anyone did, my dad knew the value of not wasting a college education. But he constantly complained about his job and warned us about getting into a bad work situation. Most of your work lives will be spent dealing with boredom, he told us. He hated his work. That much was obvious. It certainly wasn't what he dreamed of doing when he imagined himself in the French Foreign Legion as a boy or acted on the show Captain Zero in the 50s. His warning always stayed with me. Would I be able to find a job I loved, not be bored, and avoid ending up on Skid Row? It was a lot for an 11-year-old to contemplate. Not too long after we returned from our weekend away, my brother and I stumbled across a computer store named HW Computers next to a laundromat my mom was trying out for the first time. HW was part of a chain established among the first wave of computer stores. The shop was a mishmash of t-shirted techies, business-suited sales guys, IBM clones, Apple IIs, and walls filled with elaborately shaped boxes of software and games. When we saw the Atari logo on the front of the store, we begged our mom to take us there while the clothes were in the washer. Our mission that day, as it had been for a long time, was to look for Atari VCS games to see if we could play them. And we did find some VCS games, but they were unplayable in a glass case. But it was still exciting to find them. However, we also found something better, something amazing to me at the time. In another glass case at HW Computers, we saw a display of one of the most beautiful creations I'd ever witnessed, an Atari 800 computer and 810 disk drive. Atari made computers, I said? I had no idea, my brother replied. As the computer store salesman explained the machines and how much more powerful they were than the VCS and how much cheaper they were than the Apple II, I was dumbfounded by their beauty. The sleek curves of the Atari computers reminded me of the cars from the movie American Graffiti. I felt a charge in my gut when I looked at them, as if they were something I needed to possess as soon as possible. I'm not sure why exactly the name Atari attached to a computer made these seem more accessible than Apple, but it just did. 
I already had an innate love for anything Atari because I loved playing the Asteroids coin-op so much, and I'd wanted an Atari VCS for so long after falling in love with Breakout. Maybe, in my head, expensive Apple computers were for kids of engineering managers and math geniuses like Eric, while Atari was made for kids who might one day end up on Skid Row. I really can't explain it other than the name Atari attached to a computer made my brother and I both think one day it would be possible to own one. We left the store that day with a catalog listing all the Atari computer software available at HW Computers and the sneaking suspicion it would not be the last time we crossed the path of Atari computing machines. Admittingly, a big draw I had towards computers was the fact that they could play the in-depth and exciting games we saw in the store and described in the software catalog. After using Eric's Apple II, I was enamored by the process of booting the machine, inserting a disc in the floppy drive, typing a command, and running a game. The sound of the whirring disc and the audible clicks as each sector of bits was loaded from the floppy drive was thrilling. But equally thrilling was the basic programming language Eric's dad had showed us how to use. With seemingly the same commands and interface used to play games, a person could write these magical lines of text capable of making games as well. The difference between playing software and creating software appeared to be a mere matter of context, a magical flick of the wrist that could take a person from shooting aliens to breathing life into them. All those years we spent trying to make homemade pinball games in the garage with mechanical parts and lights that my dad pilfered from work, designing our own driveway sports, or hacking our analog toys into interactive experience were leading to something, and a programmable home computer felt like maybe an answer. Furthermore, if my brother and I could only get our hands on an Atari computer and learn to program one, then there was a good chance we would one day get a job making video games. At least that's how we saw it. And if we did learn to program and make video games, my dad would never have to worry about us ending up on Skid Row. I would never have to worry about ending up on Skid Row. That was the dream anyway. But dreams... By my parents' example, dreams are not always an achievable reality. Both of them lived with the constant knowledge that their own ambitions of becoming professional actors would never come to fruition. We only heard snatches of their lives before us kids came along, but it all sounded so fascinating. They met by chance in San Francisco in the 50s and acted together in plays in the San Francisco State Little Theater. After my dad got roles in a couple TV shows, they chased their dream to New York to study the method under Paul Mann. After graduating from acting school, they moved back to 1950s Hollywood to chase the TV dream once more. Then, nothing. It all evaporated. To make ends meet, my dad took a job drawing for an aerospace company, and my mom worked as a typist for Rand Corporation. When the first baby came, not soon after, the acting was put on hold indefinitely. My dad found things to keep himself busy, but my mom... She never really did. She just sat at one side of the kitchen table, playing solitaire for hours on end. The same version of Klondike over and over. Klondike from my entire childhood and beyond. Her dreams died hard. So to me, having a big dream for your life just seemed like a terrible idea. You'd end up on Skid Row, in a job you hate, or sitting by yourself wondering what could have been. I never really imagined being anything beyond my then current position, a kid who loved Star Wars and video games. But this Atari computer thing, it seemed like it was a dream worth having. It was short term. It was achievable. Maybe. Sure, computers, even cheap Atari computers, were expensive. But there had to be a way to make it happen. Part 2 for most of the 1970s, my dad rode desert motocross as his pastime and hobby. He joined a club for desert motocross racers named the Dusters. 
and spent many of his free weekends in the Mojave Desert. We accompanied him a couple times, but there was little for us to do. I always secretly wanted to be a duster. They had their own custom jerseys, and they gave out trophies to their members. My dad proudly displayed his club-awarded first-placed aged 50-plus trophy next to his bed. Next to it was an action photo of him riding in the desert. When an accident forced my dad to quit motocross racing, he picked up a new hobby, collecting military artifacts, specifically forge caps from the American Civil War. It wasn't exactly a new hobby, as he'd been interested in them since the 1950s when he saw one in a store for $5 and passed it up. He kicked himself ever since. The forge caps from the Americans of the War look very much like the hats worn by the French Foreign Legion, and my dad connected the two from his own childhood aspirations to run away and fight foreign wars. In a matter of months, he purchased several hats, either from the local gun shows or from Shotgun News Magazine, a publication for gun enthusiasts that doubled as classified ads for military memorabilia. He even wore one of the hats as he coached our soccer team, sticking out like a sore thumb among the young beach dads in our hometown. A couple months after seeing the Atari 800 in the glass case, the first issue of Electronic Games magazine was published, and it made its way into the hands of my brother and I. Even though we still had computers in our minds, the Atari VCS was never forgotten, and the first issue of Electronic Games brought it right back to the forefront. We pored over the entire magazine for weeks, geeking out at the images and descriptions of the cartridges coming out for the Atari VCS. The visceral nature of the magazine made the prospect of getting an Atari VCS feel more real than ever. We talked about the VCS constantly and made it obvious to our parents that we could no longer wait. So when Christmas 1981 rolled by, somehow they managed to get one for us. To this day, I still don't understand how. Civil War forage caps cost several hundred dollars at the time, so maybe my mom convinced my dad to postpone the purchase of a hat or two to get us an Atari? More likely, though, it was probably made possible by my mom, who had recently rejoined the workforce as a near-minimum-wage teacher's aide. No matter how we got the VCS, it was amazing to have. We were finally Atari owners and not just Atari players. And for a while, the dreams of owning an Atari computer were pushed aside as we went full bore into playing the VCS and getting all the new games reviewed and advertised in Electronic Games Magazine. This was our true video game golden age. We spent all of our money in Electronic Games Magazine, arcade tokens, and Atari cartridges. We really tried to make the VCS the best it could be, to embrace it as the future. We subscribed to Atari Age Magazine and acquired copies of Night Driver, Missile Command, and Adventure for our 12th birthday. However... The excitement was short-lived. It might have been amazing to have an Atari VCS, but it wasn't necessarily amazing to play an Atari VCS. While we were wowed by games like Asteroids and Missile Command, we were left disappointed by many others. The blockiness of adventure and the sheer hollowness of Pac-Man, for example, made us take pause. When the next-generation ColecoVision and Atari 5200 were announced in Electronic Games Magazine in 1982, the VCS felt old and tired. What was cool when I was in third grade in 1978 felt outdated and underpowered in an era of MTV and Tron. We watched our friends get these newer machines while we were stuck with the device designed when Nixon jokes still echoed on late night TV. We so desperately wanted to be on the cutting edge of technology, but in reality, our family situation meant we would always be coming from behind, trying to catch up to the modern world. Computers, on the other hand, still seem new and exciting. When I wasn't playing the VCS, I was usually in my room, lying on my bed, reading the computer playland section of electronic games, 
or paging through that Atari software catalog from HW Computers. As the months and years wore on, the games in that catalog took on a mythic quality. Their tantalizing names and descriptions felt so much deeper and more exciting than the mostly one-note gameplay of the Atari VCS. Energy Czar, Eastern Front, Temple of Apshai, Rescue at Regal, Caverns of Mars, Scott Adams Adventures, and Zork, just to name a few. All those games sounded like the deep and engrossing experiences I wanted from the VCS, but were so hard to find. It was around that time that somehow, someway, using our twin powers, my brother and I decided in unspoken terms that we both wanted, no needed, to somehow, someway, rekindle the dream and get an Atari computer in any way possible. So over the next couple years, we schemed and scouted all avenues to obtain what was fast becoming the pinnacle of our childhood dreams. Knowing how expensive computers were at the time, the salesman had told us the Atari 100 and disk drive would set us back at least $1,000. We knew we were going to have to be mighty creative in our endeavors if we were ever going to see our plans come to fruition. Sure, my dad didn't want us to end up on Skid Row, but he also didn't want to end up on Skid Row himself trying to buy a computer. To be successful, we'd have to present the computer as a device so necessary for our collective futures that there was no way he could pass up the opportunity to get one for us. The first thing we did was educate ourselves. For a couple kids who did fine in school, but would rather read Encyclopedia Brown, Three Investigators, and Choose Your Own Adventure books, this was quite a startling change of direction. We checked out books on basic programming from the library and taught ourselves the main tenets of the basic language from the seeds Mr. Barth planted years before. Line numbers, loops, go-tos, go-subs, plot and color statements. Soon we are fashioning our own analog programs on notebook and graph paper, designing games and graphics and anything else we could think of. We did these things out in the open where our parents could see our work. Sitting across the table from my mom while she played another losing game of one-person cards, we copied code from books and discussed out loud how we might create the coding ideas in our head. Among the supplies my dad brought home from his work at Hughes Aircraft were a few pages of eighth-inch graph paper. To us, the boxes on that graph paper looked just like the pixels on an 8-bit Apple II screen. We asked to borrow some of the paper, and the next day he brought us a whole stack he borrowed from the Hughes Aircraft Supply Closet. Nobody was using it, he told us. On that paper, we designed the spaceships and characters we planned to use in the games we wrote for our future Atari computer. We even inserted plot statements directly on the graph paper, so when we eventually got a computer, we could easily replicate the graphics we designed. We had no way to test out our ideas, but that didn't stop us from imagining the possibilities of what a computer could do. Along the way, the unspoken agreement among my brother and I evolved. We didn't just want to get a computer to program video games. We both hoped this would all one day lead to our ultimate goal, working at Atari, making video games, because they were, hands down, the world's greatest video game company. Skid Row, it was nowhere in the picture. Time continued to march on, and as with BMX bikes, skateboards, and video game systems before them, we, again, watched the years pass by as our friends in the neighborhood all obtained the same things we wanted so badly, but seemed so far out of our reach. First, Eric's dad upgraded to an Apple IIe. Then Wesley's dad bought him an IBM PC compatible. Next, Kenny's mom, who was a single parent, managed to get him an Atari 400, followed by Scott's parents, who scored him a TRS-80. I was happy for those guys, but frustrated too. It just seemed like the more we wanted something, the better chance someone else would get it. 
The reality was being familiar with how to program a computer did not mean we would ever own one. If our plan was going to work, we would have to start really working on getting a machine into our house. Our first solid chance came in the summer of 1982. That year, McDonald's had an Atari video game scratch and win contest, giving away thousands of Atari products, including Atari 5200s and Atari computers. We resigned ourselves that summer to win that contest by any means necessary. In between stints at the arcade that offered eight tokens for a dollar, we would walk up to the local McDonald's looking for discarded game cards on the ground, on tables, and on floors inside the restaurant. When that left us empty-handed, we braved discarded Big Macs and soggy fries as we searched through the trash cans in and outside the restaurant. We did this for a few hours a day, a few days a week, for at least half the summer. To this day, the scent of lettuce and tomatoes mixed with special sauce together conjure up memories of picking through the garbage in me. Lukewarm McDonald's garbage. Out of the dozens of game cards we eventually found, none of them were Atari winners. The best we did was win fries and a Coke or two, but we were almost too disgusted by McDonald's food trash by that time to eat any of it. As the summer passed, so did those Atari computer dreams. And by the time we were back in school in the seventh grade, the idea was pushed back, but not forgotten. That year, I quit Spanish class after one trimester and found myself working in the school computer lab. For an hour a day, I was allowed to explore a room filled with Apple IIe computers and pretty much do whatever I wanted. It was the next big revelation. I played expansive computer games, programmed in basic, drew pictures with the Koala art tablet, and wrote poems with Bank Street Writer. It became obvious to me in that lab that computers were not just another unattainable thing I was obsessed with, but they were the future. Not just my future, not just the future Eric's dad had given us a glimpse of, but the future for everyone. This realization only made my desire for a computer burn even more brightly. If only I could get my hands on one in my own room and learn how to program it, I'd be set for life. But Christmas 1982 came and went. We received a couple great Atari VCS games, River Raid and Vanguard, but much of our household, especially my dad, was distracted by moving my grandmother out of her house and into a retirement home. Early in 1983, my brother and I managed to save up and purchase a StarPath supercharger for our Atari VCS. The supercharger added about 6K of RAM to the VCS and loaded games from cassettes like many home computers did. This meant the VCS could play more elaborate games loaded from tape in multiple segments. The games were also cheap, running about 15 bucks each. For a hot minute, I believe that the supercharger might be a reasonable stand-in for an actual computer. The games it played, especially the first console RPG Dragon Stomper and the 3D maze game Escape from the Mindmaster, were mind-blowingly great. However, that idea was short-lived. We still could not program the supercharger, and very soon after we purchased it, the company who made it, Arcadia Starpath, went out of business. In fact, Atari was losing money hand over fist in 1983 and felt like the entire video game industry was going to crumble. We needed to figure out how to get a computer fast or there was a good chance we'd never get a chance to work making video games at all. Part 3 by mid-1983, my brother and I have been obsessing about owning a computer for almost three years. I don't know if it's a scientific fact that three years in kid time is at least 30 years in adult time, but it sure felt like it. Bill Bryson said it most eloquently in his memoir, The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, like this. Time moves more slowly in kid world. It goes on for decades when measured in adult terms. 
It is adult life that is over in a twinkling. It was about that time that Atari announced a brand new line of low-cost computers. The XL line consisted of the Atari 600 and the 800 XL, replacements for the Atari 400 and 800 respectively. Both had sleek new designs. Straight edges replaced the space-age curves with the older machines, with 64K RAM and BASIC built in. In mid-1983, our dad was working overtime at Hughes Aircraft with a new computerized CAD CAM system. Without any real acknowledgement of the computer obsession we've been trying to show him for years, he started coming home and bestowing upon us his wisdom about the virtues of this new computer system and how computers were going to change everything. He sounded a bit like Eric's dad did a few years back. This was new. As well, with his overtime work, he seemed to have a bit more cash even if we never saw much of it. My dad had been going full bore into his new hobby, collecting Civil War headgear. We'd attended several gun shows helping with his search, and he was obsessive about the classified ads and shotgun news, searching them for hours, looking for hats, buttons, belts, ammo holders, and any other period items from the 1860s that would satisfy his collecting hobby. His bookshelves were filled with antique books that described Civil War uniforms in detail and first-hand accounts written by the soldiers themselves. He also imagined himself in a business making reproduction Civil War kepis and bummers, the names of his favorite forage caps, and his walls were filled with drawings and designs of the different parts of hats and how he might go about recreating them. All these antiques he bought ate heavily into the household income. Even though my mom took as many hours at her teacher's aid job as she could, we were still left buying most of our clothes at discount shops and our shoes at the local swap meet. This made it very hard for us to fit in with the expensive surf clothes wearing kids at junior high. We were nerds, but we did even realize it. We just knew we wanted a computer. My brother and I decided it was time to finally tell our dad about the Atari we've been coveting. With my dad openly talking about computers now, it felt like we had some common ground to start a discussion. Unconsciously, I believe, our goal was to appeal to a sense of his own obsessions. We needed to try to make our desire for an Atari computer look and feel like his own hobbies. Those hobbies appeared legitimate because they had dedicated magazines, clubs, books, trade shows where enthusiasts could gather and explore together. I still recall us taking our stacks of books, magazines, catalogs, and notebooks filled with handwritten basic code into his room. He was on his bed as usual, watching the black and white TV he repaired after going to night school. This is when my mom still slept there. Her things still occupied half the room. Her hairbrush and mirror still on their shared dresser, next to the giant mirror with the enormous crack in the upper left corner. Hey, Pop, one of us said. Can we show you something? We didn't just show him something. We showed him everything especially focused on the magazines and their pictures and ads for Atari, which I only now realize was a parallel to how he focused on shotgun news for his hobby. We pointed out the new, lower-cost Atari computers that had been announced that year. He watched us as we paged with the books we checked out, the programs we had written, and displayed our code and pixel drawings, plus the catalogs and magazines we had about Atari. Our dad was blown away by our enthusiasm, but we were still not sure Atari was a company that was serious about making computers. The one thing he did do, at least for a short time, was stop talking about Skid Row. It was a small thing, but just noticeable enough to encourage us to keep trying for an Atari 800XL. So we stepped up the pressure another notch. We had to somehow get him to understand that not only did Atari make the best computers in the world and that they played the best games, but just having one could be our ticket to never worrying about having a job or being laid off, something he worried about constantly. Soon after, we begged our dad to take us to a computer show at the LA Convention Center. We saw an ad for in the LA Times, and we imagined it would be like the CES or Comdex shows we read about in magazines. 
It was also the closest cousin to the gun shows to which we accompanied my dad when he was looking for Civil War artifacts. By taking us to those gun shows, we opened our eyes to the fact that these types of events existed. We planned to explore the Atari booth at the show and make sure he knew that Atari made serious computers and were a serious player in the industry and not just the video game system we had hooked up to the TV. We didn't know much about computer shows at the time, and it turned out that the one we chose was serious all right, and it covered IBM PCs only. Atari was nowhere to be found. I still recall my brother and I walking through the tables on the show floor, desperate to see any Atari machines anywhere so my dad could see that they were serious and real, but none were found. My dad was livid. He spent money on tickets, parking, and gas, and we came away with nothing. It was a huge blow to our dream, and it was the first time I realized that while I might have high regard for Atari computers, there was a whole industry that didn't even acknowledge their existence. Maybe we were wrong about Atari. It was near this time that my dad came home from work completely frustrated. He relayed a story to us about his computer at work and how it had turned on him. Whatever system he was using apparently did not have a backspace, which is either an actual backspace or his way of describing undo. When I'm drafting by hand, I can just erase with a pencil, but with this computer, I have to start all over again. I hate these computers. It was yet another blow to our efforts. We thought our dad had embraced the future, but it looked like he was quickly slipping into the past. We needed to find something else to send things in the other direction. And in the summer of 1983, we found it. Space, S-B-A-C-E, the South Bay Atari computer enthusiast, was an Atari computer club that held monthly meetings a few miles from our house. Jeff and I found about them in an Atari computer magazine, Antiker Analog, both of which we bought regularly. We showed our dad the date and time for the meeting, and he agreed to take us. I was nervous about going to the space meeting. I felt like a kid entering an adult world. The last time we accompanied my dad to an adult affair was when he took up acting again as a hobby a few years prior. He took us down to the stage where they were preparing sets and he gave us jobs to help. My brother and I were on our hands and knees scraping old paint off the floor when an angry woman in some kind of charge saw us and yelled, Who are these kids and why are they here? The pit of my stomach filled with bile when I heard this. I froze and could not look up. My ears turned red. My eyes started getting wet. My dad quickly came over, apologized to the woman, and took us home. I never found out why we posed such an affront to her, but I never forgot it. We had invaded an adult world that did not want us. I certainly hoped that the space meeting would not turn out like that. We paid our dues and sat down in the folding chairs in a room about 50 feet long and 25 feet wide. We were about 15 minutes early, so I watched as the other attendees arrived. I was relieved to see that most of them looked a lot like my dad. Still, I tried to make myself small and invisible in the chair, just in case. When one of the arrivals stopped next to us and turned to my dad, I was scared crapless about what he was going to say. Were we going to get kicked out of there, too? The man leaned over to my dad, pointed to us, and said, I see you got a couple Atari computer fans there. Welcome. My dad nodded, and the man nodded back. And that was that. We were good. The rest of the meeting was breathtakingly brilliant. There was talk of Atari BBS systems coming online, where to buy Atari computers, demos of games and programs written by members and much more. All of these adults and a few kids talking about Atari computers as if they were the most important computers in the world. When it was over, I'm not sure how my dad felt about the meeting. He got up and immediately went to the back of the room. I thought he was trying to leave, but instead he headed straight to the membership table and bought us each a year's membership to space. Sure, it wasn't like being a member of a cool 70s desert motocross racing club named the Dusters, but it was the closest 
we were ever going to get. On the way home, it felt like my dad was just as excited about his computers as we were. Our joyful conversation in the cab of the four-door international pickup truck traveled from computers to our futures as adults. With computers and soccer, you could be set for life, I recall him telling us, your mind and body fulfilled. We swept him up in our computer dream, telling him about how we could grow up to be programmers, a sellable skill, and not be bored with work because computers were cool and not end up on Skid Row because we would get paid. He seemed to buy every word. By the time we made it home, he was sold. That night, he joined us on our quest to make the Atari computer dream a reality. And even better, he wanted to do it by Christmas 1983. I felt then that the upcoming Christmas was going to be the best f***ing Christmas ever. Part four. In the months that led up to Christmas 1983, we made attack plans on how we would make the Atari computer plan a success. We listed all the things we would need. A shiny new Atari 800XL, a 1050 disk drive, a box of 10 blank disks, and a color TV for output on a proper computer desk in our room. My dad took care of the color TV by setting us up with a refurbished one he repaired from someone else's garbage. Jeff and I loved the all-wood computer desk that Eric's dad had set up for his Apple IIe, and the giant fancy office desk Wesley had in his room for his IBM PC. We showed my dad pictures of computer desks in the Sears catalog, but he had his own ideas. He did the best he could for us given his other priorities. He found an old discarded desk on the side of the road and took it home with him one night hauling several pieces in the back of his pickup truck. He salvaged the metal desk drawers and added a tabletop from some discarded boards in the garage. Then he fashions a set of legs with two by fours for the side opposite the drawers to keep it upright. It was not pretty, but it certainly would not stand out in our house filled mostly with other discards, side-of-the-road specials, makeshift beds, etc. In fact, it was right at home. Now we just needed to find a computer that could sit on top of it. Throughout the fall, we kept looking for the best prices on Atari machines. Every week, we check ads in the LA Times and take a trip to Fedco and Gemco to see if shipments of 800XLs had arrived. Our fellow members of space relayed their own stories, and at one of the meetings in late 1983, we found out why. One of the speakers informed the attendees that Atari was having some kind of production problems and their computers were slow to arrive in the USA. What we didn't know was that in 1983, Atari had cut costs and moved their manufacturing to Asia. They also got a new CEO who halted all production for a short time so he could make sense of the mess the previous CEO left behind. Both of, the, both of these events left the store shelves bare of Atari computer products in the run-up to Christmas. It couldn't have come at a worse time. Even though my dad was ready to make a purchase, simply finding an Atari 800XL computer anywhere became a huge problem. As the weeks before Christmas turned into mere days, the outlook became bleaker and bleaker. There were none to be found in any local stores. On Christmas Eve, we still had no computer purchased, but we took one last trip to Fedco just for the hell of it. It was Saturday, December 24th, and it just so happened to be the same day that Fedco finally received their first shipment of Atari 800XL computers. The store shelves were packed to the raffers. We were amazed and dazed. Our dream of almost four years was coming true, and on Christmas Eve, my brother and I ran around the aisles gleefully picking out everything we needed. I still recall the joy we felt when we finally saw the boxes for the 800XL and the 1050 disk drive. It felt like a Christmas miracle. I still recall what happened next, as if in slow motion. The movement of my dad, the expression on his face, the surprise of what he was seeing. I can see it now and will never forget it. 
because it was not joy he was expressing. My father was not enthusiastic about finding Atari computers at all. He looked quite shocked, actually, that the store had anything in stock, almost like he planned to not find anything there. As we dashed around the store, he finally got up the nerve to give us the news he'd been holding back. Boys, I can't buy this Atari 800XL this year. I didn't get enough overtime pay to afford one. We'll have to do it next year. And that was that. In a word, my brother and I were devastated. We went home and sulked. Christmas was ruined and there was nothing we could do. I wish our dad had never latched onto our plan as it only raised our hopes to dash them in the worst way possible. Why had he just gone through the motions of pretending to want this for us? I'd never been more angry at him. Like every year, we went to Catholic Church with my mom that Christmas Eve, and as we exited to the verses of Joy to the World, the feeling of Christmases of old swept over me. By the time we got home, I felt warm and happy. It was nice to be at our house, and nice to know that Christmas was just a few hours away. My granny and sisters were home when we got back, and we soon got caught up in the evening. It was Christmas by God, and would still be fun, as it always was. My mom, my wonderful mom, could not help but make it nice. Her little traditions were the heart and soul of our Christmas anyway. There would be no computer, but there would be Christmas stockings filled with thoughtful goodies from her paycheck. There would be biscuits for breakfast and turkey for dinner. And since the holiday fell on a Sunday that year, we still have two full weeks to play with whatever we received. Even without a computer coming, we still might get some Atari VCS or Vectric games, and that couldn't be all bad. Maybe a ColecoVision was in our future. Sleep that night, though, was tough. It was not the usual Christmas Eve jitters from when I was little. But something more. All the pent-up energy and feelings from years of hoping, planning, and scheming to get that Atari computer were poured into twisted dreams about the Atari Christmas gone awry. Asleep, awake, asleep, awake, with dreams in between about what could have been. More thoughts came. Darker thoughts. I was angry when I thought about my dad's hobbies. There were still four motorcycles in the garage that he didn't ride anymore. His room was stuffed with artifacts that he had purchased to feed his Civil War habit, yet our family still lived mostly makeshift. We rode makeshift bikes, we slept on makeshift beds, we wore makeshift clothes, had a makeshift TV set that sat on an empty makeshift computer desk. The plumbing, electricity, windows, floors, and paint in our house were bandaged with makeshift patches but never really fixed. My dad's hobbies were always fully funded though. Why couldn't he just put aside some of that stuff just once, just this once, to help us achieve this Atari computer dream? His hobbies seemed to be his priority. When would we be his priority? Even when he coached our soccer team, it felt sometimes like the strategy of putting together the lineups was more important to him than spending time with my brother and I. Like, he'd still be doing it even if we never showed up anymore for practice or games. To say I was never sure my dad loved me was a pretty accurate statement. It was always a mystery to us just how he felt about anything or anyone. He neither conveyed his emotions as the thoughtfulness of a romantic, which he was not, nor the overwrought bigness of an alcoholic, which he also was not. Instead, he showed that he cared with the subtle gestures of a prestidigitator, so small as to be merely experienced out of thin air. Getting that Atari computer, and more specifically my dad giving it to us on Christmas, had become in my mind the proof that I needed that I was okay, that my brother was okay. It would be the absent hug I always wanted from him, wrapped up neatly in a bow and placed under our Christmas tree. It would have proven once and for all that he didn't actually think I would ever end up on Skid Row, that the future was here, and that he believed truly in his heart 
that I would be part of it. But that was a can kicked down the road for another time. I'd have to live with it, and by the time I finally drifted off to sleep that night, a sense of restful peace came over me. Maybe we could get an Atari computer for our birthday, which was less than a month away. Dreams don't die, I guess. They have a way of morphing and adjusting to the realities of life. I still plan to learn to program a real computer, and I still plan to one day work for Atari, and I still plan to never end up homeless. I just didn't want this dream to die like I saw my mom's acting dreams die. If it did, what would be my solitaire at the kitchen table? What would be the thing I wasted my days away doing because I never got the chance to do what I felt was my destiny to do? Part 5. The morning of Christmas 1983 and the next two weeks are a complete blur in my mind. For how precisely I remember the events that led up to Christmas 1983, the events afterwards live in a state of suspended animation, where all memories seem to rest on top of one another, as if they all happened at the same time. Some scientists theorize that time never actually passes, but simply folds over and over onto itself. If there ever was any anecdotal evidence to support this idea, it would be my Christmas 1983. My brother and I awoke that morning, and things were just as my father had said. There was no Atari Integrated Excel computer, and there was no Atari 1050 disk drive. There was no shiny new computer software in elaborately shaped packages or brand new books and manuals for us to read about our new computer. Instead, there was something else entirely. There were two giant old-style 1970s Atari computer boxes, one for an Atari 800 and one for an 810 disk drive. Next to those boxes was another plain brown cardboard box. None of it was wrapped, just hurriedly placed on the table for us to find. My brother and I were in complete shock. Our father had not lied to us. It was true. He could not afford an Atari 800XL, an Atari 1050 disk drive, or brand new computer games. Instead, he got us an old Atari 800? He got the wrong one, I said aloud. I tried to smile, but it was tough. Was this another one of my dad's cheap fake-outs instead of the real thing? Another bargain? Another makeshift way to solve a problem? Another situation that left us behind the times instead of in front of them? I examined the Atari 800 box. It looked fairly new, but the side said it had only 16K of memory. That meant it was a 1979 vintage Atari 800. The new sleeker Atari 800XL had four times as much memory. The 800XL also had the new GTIA graphics chip that was lacking in the original Atari 800 models. Next to the Atari 800 box was a box for the 810 disk drive. The drive was built like a tank, but almost as big as one. The 810 was okay, but it was only single-sided, single-density, so it could only store 90K on a disk. The newer 1050XL drive was a superior enhanced density for more storage. My brother and I had studied enough magazines and heard enough of the space meetings to know how much better the XL computers were supposed to be than the old 400 and 800. However, it was not all bad. The cardboard box behind the Atari boxes appeared to be filled with all kinds of extras, like books and discs. Now that was intriguing. Even though we were both puzzled by the gift, when my dad came out of his room about an hour later, we put on our happy faces and thanked him profusely. Then he told us what happened. He told his buddy at work, Dave Elwood, about the Atari we wanted, and Mr. Elwood informed him that he had one already and he wanted to upgrade to an IBM PC. So Elwood sold him the older model Atari 800 and an older model A10 disk drive and all the software he collected for three years. It was a very good price, my dad said. Yep, a f***ing bargain, I thought to myself. I do not recall anything else at all from that Christmas morning except the building anticipation that I could not wait for all the present opening to complete so I could get to those computer boxes and see if the day could be salvaged. 
The exact moment the last piece of wrapping paper was thrown into the green trash bag and my dad fired at the Pioneer receiver to put on Christmas music, my brother and I whisked that Atari back to our room to check it out. We approached the computer with trepidation. The boxes were dusty and showed the wear of being in storage for a while. They were a far cry from the brand new shiny Atari XL boxes we saw at Fedco the day before. When we took out the equipment and cables, instead of the fresh smell of new plastic, they had the distinct sweet odor of old leather and cigar smoke. The machines were mostly clean though, and Mr. Elwood had upgraded the memory to 48K and the CTIA chip to a GTIA chip. So that was good. We placed the computer on our makeshift computer desk, hooked it up to our makeshift TV, and never, ever looked back. It turned out, rather unexpectedly, that buying Elwood's second-hand Atari was a brilliant idea. In the extra cardboard box came the spoils of Mr. Elwood's own foray into home computing that was now passed on to us. It contained discs and cartridges and joysticks and books and manuals and catalogs. There was so much stuff it was overwhelming. It would take us weeks or even months to discover it all. Over the first couple hours of testing the machine, our excitement built rapidly. In fact, there was something very special about the Atari computer system that my dad got for us. Far from being a poor substitution for a shiny new machine like we feared, it was, quite possibly, the greatest idea my dad ever had. The second-hand Atari 100 was like an instant starter set into the world of home computing. It was honestly the best gift a couple of 13-year-old Atari-obsessed computer twins in 1983 could ever hope for. If we had received a new Atari 800XL, I'm not sure it would have had the same ultimate effect on us. Instead of starting new with just a few programs and games for our computer, we quite literally dove into the middle with so much available to explore it felt like an actual gold mine. Like all the listings and descriptions in that HW computer catalog, the one that we read over and over until it fell apart, those had become real, materializing right before our eyes on Christmas morning. My dad had come through. He had finally come through. His bargain hunting and frugal nature, in this case, turned out to be the linchpin. It was the very thing that made the Atari computer he gave us on Christmas 1983 so damned wonderful. We dove into that computer and all the riches it held and did not come up for air until two weeks later when we had to go back to school. We fired up DOS, read through the book Eurotide Computer, and typed in many basic programs. Mr. Elwood collected dozens of games and we tried them all. Every Zork adventure, every Scott Adams adventure, all the Atari-created arcade translations, Star Raiders, and tons of others. We even explored financial programs, graphics demos, the realms of the public domain, and everything in between. Days passed quickly into nights and nights into days. Meals were skipped or forgotten. Bathing was left to the vein. Anything that would take us away from that Atari computer for more than a short time was pushed off as long as possible. The two weeks of vacation felt like a single, long, amazing day. We discovered everything we ever wanted to know about owning our own computer because now we had one in our own room. It was unthinkable. It was unfathomable. Yet there we were. Our hopes had been fulfilled. It was the last pure moment. I ever knew as a child, the joy of complete intellectual and sensory discovery. The computer held the promise as a device that would entertain us as much as we could control it. We could mold it into whatever we wanted or needed. It was seemingly an unlimited tool for playing, learning, and creating. The best part was my dad got it for us, and to me, that meant he must have loved us 
right? Even though he never actually said it, his intentions were obvious, and he didn't mention Skid Row for many years after that. Seeing that Atari computer on my computer desk when I woke up the day after Christmas in 1983 and realizing it was real and the dream had been fulfilled was one of the most indescribable feelings of elation I have ever experienced. It was bested only by falling in love with my wife for the first time and having my first child. Decades later, I still feel the same way. The discoveries and life lessons of that Christmas stand out. I look back on that Christmas to remind me of the reasons why I still play games and program computers for a living. There was always the hope of the next great discovery just around the corner. The idea that I will unearth something so engrossing, so intellectually stimulating, that I will dive into its all-encompassing void, only to lift my head up when I found the riches inside. And then I think of my parents. Our love of computers, no matter how much it burned in us, never rubbed off on them. My mom still played analog games of solitaire at the same place at the kitchen table well into her 80s until she could no longer see the cards. She never, ever, not even once, touched a computer, no matter how hard I tried to get her to do it. My dad did try, but it was not for him. The physical world of his Civil War come French Foreign Legion obsession never abated. He longed to find and understand the vibes he felt for the past. The future honestly did not interest him. My dad still wore a Civil War hat on his head every day until the moment he died in his living room. But none of that stopped us, and none of it would ever make me forget the most important moment of that Christmas day in 1983. The one moment in a blur of memories I recall precisely. It's an image that sticks in my mind and never goes away. It was in the evening time. Darkness had flooded the inside, and as always, the minimal lighting from the sketchy electricity in our house was trying to hold it at bay. My stomach was full of my mom's food, and the house was warm and cozy from the forced air heater, plus the smells of leftovers and French apple pie. Everyone in our house had retired to their happy places. Another Christmas over Hey everybody, in the books. it's Bill from our Atari Bytes. On their best Every week on my show I play a great old game, now allowed then to I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. In our Loosely inspired. Room, my brother and I okay, often completely side different. Side and booted Sometimes not even based in any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical the Blank, morning, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep room. listening. I typed our first basic code from one of Elwood's books, and Hello World filled up the screen. Then we edited the program to make our own version. It was just a small change, really, but it was our change. All those years of writing code and notebooks and stealing time from friends' computers and the computers in the lab at school were over. The code we wrote was a simple message that said everything. Hello, Stephen Jeff. I'm your Atari computer. Jeff typed run, and the message filled the screen. We saved the program to a 90K single-sided, single-density disc on the 810 disk drive so we could keep it forever. And that was it. We had done it. Our plans had worked. We were computer programmers, or at least we had the tools and desire to become computer programmers. I instinctively knew at that moment nothing, and I mean nothing in life, would ever be the same again. The power sat on my desk that day to forge my own destiny. It was an amazing moment when I truly believed with the computer in my hands and a dream in my head, anything was within my grasp. And that's why I believe Christmas 1983, the Atari Computer Christmas, was the best f***ing Christmas ever.
Atari 7800 Christmas. Holy crap! What? Jeff replied. He looked over at me to see that I was reading an advertisement in Antic Magazine. Look at this. Atari 7800s for sale. October of 1986 was a trying time for Atari 8-bit nerds like Jeff and I. We'd seen the inferior, to us anyway, Commodore 64 reign supreme for a couple years. We loved our Atari 800 computer, but after three years of serious 8-bit computing, we pretty much experienced everything there was to get out of our tan, wedge-shaped machine from Atari's better days. The flood of new software from the early 80s had become a trickle. Most software companies were skipping the Atari 8-bit line in favor of the better-selling Commodore machine. The C64 had become the de facto games machine ever since the USA video game industry imploded in 1983, and it killed us as lifelong Atari fans that the name on that box was not Atari. But Commodore wasn't the only thing on our minds. On occasion, when I caught Saturday morning cartoons, I would see commercials on TV for the Nintendo Entertainment System and its odd robot peripheral Rob. I remember Nintendo as the company that had made Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and the Popeye coin-op games. To me, they were fine games, but nothing special. They certainly had nothing on Atari's coin-ops. Still, it was weird to see commercials for video games again. And I have to be honest, some of the games are pretty good. But still, it had been years since I had seen any images of video games on TV that were not followed by doomsday predictions of crashing markets, addicted kids, and the word fad. In that time, one true fact had been burned into my brain. Video games were over. Computers were the future. And it was true. At this time, even 8-bit computers were being moved out of the way, with the Macintosh, the Amiga, and Atari's 16-bit ST computer on the horizon. On the commercials, the NES kind of looked cheap, and I was sure it would disappear quickly, and I'd never hear about it again. As far as I was concerned, video games were dead, and computers had completely taken their place. Even Atari coin-up games, which had once been the best games in the arcade, had fallen on hard times. With games like Super Mario Bros., R-Type, and Arknoid competing for floor space, Atari games contests like Championship Sprint and 720 did not stand much of a chance. In short, Atari fans were in a very rough spot in 1986. Intruders had overridden our camp from all sides. Any notion we had back in 1984 that the Tremils would save Atari were long gone. However, we were still loyal. The Atari Fuji symbol was burned into our brains. We had to follow. That's why it was so exciting to see in Antic Magazine mail order companies selling the Atari 7800 and about a dozen different games at rock bottom prices. The console was $69.99 and most of the games were $9.99 or $14.99. The Atari 7800 and its next generation games had once looked so awesome in the pages of Electronic Games Magazine in 1984. The machine was backwardly compatible so we could play the stack of orphaned Atari 2600 games we had ever since our 2600 died and couldn't display an image on the screen. We just had to have one and this time it was an easy sell. We showed our mom the ad in Antic and she was only happy to oblige by ordering us a 7800 and two games, Galaga and Food Fight for Christmas. My mom loved Christmas. She scrimped and saved money all year long to make sure it was a great day for our family. She was allowed to once again, maybe for the last time, get us a gift that we really, truly wanted. The late released 1986 Atari 7800 and cheap games gave her a chance to provide a nice gift for her boys using the money she saved from her job as a teacher's aide. She wouldn't have to ask my dad for a dime to help cover it. This was useful as my mom had moved out of my parents' bedroom and was now sleeping on the couch. She said it was because she could no longer breathe in their room. But the distance between our parents 
both rapidly hurtling towards retirement age, was not lost on us. She and my mom sleep on our decades-old couch killed me. She didn't deserve to sleep there. I promised myself I'd find a way for her to sleep on a real bed as soon as I could make that happen. After we knew the 7800 was on the way, my brother and I came up with an idea. A wonderful, awful, terrible idea. We decided to sell all of our Atari 8-bit computer equipment, save the money, and combine it with Christmas and birthday money from our birthday in January to purchase an Atari ST computer as soon as they were available in 1987. The plan made no sense at all. We were going to spend hundreds of dollars for a new Atari computer that probably would not be supported by any software, that was not compatible with any other Atari platform, and that no one else we knew had or was ever going to have. Sue us. We are Atari nerds living in the vertical blank. In the next month, I raced to finish the final game I had purchased for the Atari 800, Ultima 4. I spent many hours every day trying to perfect my avatar. Before school, in the afternoon, while I was on the phone with my girlfriend, and late at night, after and instead of doing homework. By early December, I had managed to make it to the room with the codex, but I never managed to finish the game. At the same time, we started advertising the vast amount of Atari-related equipment we had collected over the years for sale. We started by posting on local bulletin boards like Swamps and Video BBS. We had hundreds of discs, an extra 810 disk drive, 850 interface, Gemini 10X printer, Atari 800, Atari 800XL, 1050 drive, cables, books, games, etc. By mid-December, all but a few of the five and a quarter floppies had been sold, and we pocketed about $400. With two weeks until Christmas, a sudden realization hit us. For the first time in five years, we were nearly gameless. Aside from a Vectrex with the dodgy number one fire button, we had no games to play whatsoever. The next 14 days were mostly torture. Jeff and I busied ourselves trying to earn money to pay for two Christmas dances. We were both dating girls from an all-girls Catholic school, and they had their own dance, and we had ours at our own all-evil public school. And for gifts for said girls and for our families, by the time that mayhem had ended, it was Christmas break, and there were just a few days to wait until the 25th and the Atari 7800. In hindsight, maybe we should have concentrated a bit more on those Christmas dances and the expectations of those rich Catholic schoolgirls from the good side of town. But such was not our focus or ability. Our futures lied in a different place. Still, being gameless was very difficult. The few days left before Christmas moved slower than any days I can recall. While we used to play 8-bit computer games late into the night, now all we had was broadcast TV. By the 24th, we were climbing the walls trying to find something interesting to do. To say getting an Atari 7800 on Christmas morning was as exciting as getting a 2600 in 1981 or an 800 in 1983 would be overstating the facts a bit. It was cool to get one. The best part was seeing the pleased look on my mom's face when my brother and I were pretend surprised when opening the 7800. She knew we were faking it but she sipped her coffee with satisfaction anyway. However, we did not have high hopes for it. Atari Corp's output had been such a disappointment up until that point, we held back most of our enthusiasm until after we had a chance to boot the machine and play some games. For when we finally did get it up and running, 
We were blown away. Yes, I said blown away. The packing game Pole Position 2 was near arcade quality. Offhand, I could not find any differences with it in the coin-op. While the coin-op was not a huge favorite of mine, I could still see how much better this version was than Pole Position had been for the 8-bit computers. Suitably impressed, we tried the next game, Galaga. Galaga had been one of my favorite coin-op games for several years at the time, and I knew the 7800 version would have to be something special to get me excited for it. Luckily, the people at GCC and Atari back in 1983 and 1984 had done a remarkable job with the translation. While a few things looked different, the ships were smaller and less colorful than the arcade counterparts, the game played like a near-exact copy of Galaga. All the same strategies could be employed, and I could feel the home version would have me playing for a long time to come. The third and final game we tried for the 7800 was Food Fight. Again, another GCC Atari coin-op from 1983. Right from the outset, we could tell the game would become the showpiece for the 7800. The game was a near-exact copy of the Food Fight coin-op still one of the best and most underrated arcade contests ever produced. Jeff and I spent the next couple of days playing and replaying all the 7800 games. We were amazed, simply amazed at the quality of the games. It was cool to play them in 1986, almost 1987, but it was difficult not to wonder how good they would have seemed if they had come out at their scheduled release in 1984. For a couple diehard Atari fans, this missed opportunity was almost too much to bear. The 7800 rocked, and we were ecstatic about it. The euphoria we felt for the 7800 did not end with the three games we received for Christmas morning. Armed with the desire to experience more of what that amazing machine had to offer, we set out on an after-Christmas-week quest to find as many games as possible for it. Now, this was 1986. The week after Christmas was not at all like it is now. In 2019, the week after Christmas is like Christmas 2, but with gift cards. But back then, the shelves after Christmas were mostly bare. Restocking did not happen until late January. For the most part, stores were open to handle returns and complaints and get ready for New Year's white sales. We were both learning to drive, but not having a license or a car yet. So my mom took us on our quest, a job she gladly accepted. Even in the rush of after Christmas traffic, she was only happy to oblige. I suppose she realized this was another fleeting moment she did not want to miss of her boys growing up. The day was like the driving quest when we were little, trying to locate packs of Star Wars trading cards to finish our collection. My mom grew up Catholic and I'm sure she heard the rumored reputation of Catholic schoolgirls who dated boys from public school. She was holding on to our youth one more time, and I guess so were we. we. At the same time, finding any shiny new 7800 games to feed our newfound hunger for titles was rather difficult. After trying the local targets, Kmart, Sears, and KB without any luck, we finally managed to find a few new games at Toys R Us in Sherman Oak, California. Even then, the pickings were very slim. Among the game offerings were Miss Pac-Man, Centipede, Dig Dug, Xevious, and Asteroids. They were not even displayed on the store floor. Jeff and I spied them in the video game cage, high up on a shelf, 
stacked above and behind the mass of Nintendo NES games. The guy working the cage had no idea what we were talking about when we mentioned the 7800. So we had to request each game by name, and he would go through the painful process of searching the stacks as we pointed wildly towards any box that said Atari or 7800 on the side. Still, the process was worth the effort. At 999 to 1999, each of the games was an absolute bargain. We picked up Dig Dug, Xevious, and Asteroids and took them home to investigate. Dig Dug had been one of the favorite games of mine, when it was positioned at the front of the local Manhattan Liquors next to the Tempest machine. While I had been very disappointed with the 8-bit version of the game, the 7800 captured much of the cute aesthetic missing from other translations. Simple details like the inclusion of a text font that closely matched the arcade game went a long way to separate the 7800 version from all the ones that came before. Xevious had always been an intriguing arcade game for me. The first top-down scrolling shooter that I could recall offered a ship with two weapons, multiple different types of enemies. It was also insanely difficult. One of the most interesting aspects of the arcade was the eagle design that you could fly over when you were close to finishing each level. I was very excited to see this recreated for the 7800. This version captured everything I liked about the arcade game and had me wondering what other wonderful games in the genre could have been made for the 7800. Asteroids, however, was the showstopper. Officially titled Asteroids 3D, it was the version of Atari's classic coin-op we had been waiting for for years. The Atari 2600 version was decent, but sullied with flicker and asteroids that only move vertically. The 8-bit computer version was a slow, jumbled mess, and the 5800 version was never released because it was unplayable with the system's idiotic controllers. This meant that all the 7800 had to do was play a decent game and would easily end up on top. However, instead of just being decent, the 7800 version obliterated all previous efforts. The graphics were updated with a cool 3D look, and the gameplay was nearly identical to the coin-op. Beyond that, it offered a two-player simultaneous competitive and team modes, something very rare in a console at the time. Jeff and I were in Asteroids Heaven from the moment we inserted the cartridge into the 7800. Aside from short bursts with other games, including 2600 favorites like River Raid and Vanguard, Asteroids rarely left the 7800 cartridge slot for the remainder of Christmas Vacation. When school restarted again in January, our desire to play the 7800 did not subside. If anything, we wanted to play it much more. While Asteroids was still a favorite, the other 7800 games started getting a bunch of playing time as well. For at least a week into January 1987, I woke up an hour early just to get a few rounds of Galaga in before school started. Likewise, it was difficult to tear Jeff away from the console after school as he attempted to master Food Fight. To us, these were awesome translations of arcade games, better than anything we had ever seen or played. A couple of weeks into January 1987, my mom took my brother and I for a DMV driver's test. Jeff passed with flying colors while I barely made it, but still we both became legitimate driving citizens that day. When we finally save up enough money to buy a car, you won't have to take us to Go Boy to buy records or to the mall to buy video games anymore, I recall saying to my mom as she drove us back home. She was silent for a bit, and then she said, Yeah, be sure to always wear your seatbelt and avoid left turns whenever you can. She was silent the rest of the way home. 
By our birthday in late January, we still managed to use a bit of our birthday cast to buy 7800 versions of both Joust and Robotron, neither of which disappointed us in any way. So far, the 7800 had not let us down, and we were very surprised as we did not believe the new Atari had the ability to pull anything like this off. Was Atari Corp really part of the next generation of video games? Soon after our birthday that year, Jeff and I visited our friend Wesley Cruz's house. Wesley had been on a ski trip for most of Christmas vacation, and we had been too busy right after school started to go over to his house. He was itching to show us his new Christmas gift, a Nintendo NES. I did not have high hopes for it. Like I said, the commercials for the machine had made it look like the Coleco Atom or Mattel Aquarius. Bizarre, underpowered, overpriced systems with far too many cheap plastic peripherals. The first game he showed us was Duck Hunt, and it proved the point. It was a light gun game that played like all others from about the same time. The gun did not match up right with the on-screen cursor, the action was bland, and all seemed fairly awful. It did not compare well to the nearly pixel-perfect, old-school arcade action on the 7800 in any way. However, the second game he played was another thing entirely. Excite Bike on the NES looked and played exactly like the Versus coin-up we had seen in the arcades. The graphics were crisp, the sprites were large, the action was enthralling. Not only that, the game allowed players to create their own tracks and then race them. One other thing we noticed right away were the controllers. Instead of a joystick, they had four arrow buttons and two fire buttons, plus start and select buttons. All of these buttons were top-mounted on a rectangular pad. The pad was easy to hold, and the buttons were easy to press. The 7800 had two fire button controllers too, but they were nothing like the Nintendo controllers. The 7800 Pro Line controllers, one day called the Pain Line controllers, were difficult to hold, and with buttons on either side of the controller, it caused your hand to cramp after a short time. I tried to find some kind of fault with the NES and the way the games played or were controlled, but honestly, there was nothing I could identify. It played very enjoyable, new style games, and included next generation features that Atari had not even considered in 1983 when the 7800 was first designed. While the Tremils, who had run Atari Corp, could have redesigned the 7800 to better compete with the NES, they had released it as is, and the machine suffered by comparison. It took about 20 minutes of playing a sight bike before Jeff and I both realized that there would be no future for the 7800. Well, the Atari system had some great translations of old arcade games, that's all it had. It simply could not match the deep excitement of playing games on the NES. There was an unmistakable yet indescribable quality to Excite Bike that made us wanted to play it over and over again. This addictive quality did not come from the rinse and repeat game style of Atari's single screen skill games, but from the depth of play and the creative tools that seemed to let you play forever without repeating anything. In a sense, the 7800 became our last goodbye to the golden age of Atari video games. We finally got a chance to play games that should have saved Atari in 1984 and could have kept them on top long after. However, in 1987, compared to the NES, they looked like far little too late. The 7800 was a great little machine, but after being held in a dungeon for almost three years, it came out looking like the world, when quickly being conquered by Nintendo, had passed it by. The funny thing was, even though we had thought it was pretty cool, we were not sold on the NES either. The deep qualities that we liked about Excitebike were the same things we liked about computer games. The NES 
was still just an 8-bit machine, but newer, powerful 16-bit computers had just arrived. Unlike the 8-bit computer party that we had joined a half decade too late, we wanted to join the 16-bit era on the ground floor. Soon, after a tumultuous Valentine's Day, the Catholic schoolgirls were long gone, and my brother and I were computerless and girlfriendless and looking towards the next big thing. So a couple weeks later, Jeff and I traveled out to Orange, California, our pockets filled with the money we had saved An since November to purchase an Atari production. ST computer from the back trunk of a guy, his name was Art, I believe, who ran the store Computer Games Plus. Honestly, this was the only non-mail order way to purchase an Atari ST at the time. We took the machine home and then embarked on a brand new computer quest that would lead us on all sorts of digital wild adventures. We still played our 7800, especially Asteroids, Galaga, and Food Fight, and over the years even purchased a few more games for it from the bargain mints. However, it took a far back seat to the Atari ST in its 16-bit revolution. The Atari ST was a serious computer, and we were becoming more serious ourselves. Mere video games would not suffice any longer. We didn't quite realize it at the time, but we made our first real adult decision to buy an Atari ST. And by selling our Atari 800 to afford it, we pretty much invested all we had in the world just to get it. In time, the 7800 was put into the broken wooden TV cabinet in our living room next to the crappy old couch where my mom now slept every night. It was the same cabinet that once held our 2600. I don't ever recall playing the 7800 much after that. Soon, its memory faded away placed into the same bit bucket of similar forgotten Atari nerd dreams and went directly into the vertical blank. Christmas Train, Part 1, H.O. Scale Christmas. Train tracks feel like the stuff of life to me. They stretch long into an unseen distance, appear never-ending, yet always travel to a known and inevitable destination. I've always had a fascination with trains. When I was very young, in the middle of the night, from my bedroom window, the one reliable noise was a long, loud whistle 
from the Western Pacific trains rumbling through the Los Angeles suburbs, pulling their loads from the port in San Pedro to destinations unknown to me. I love looking down the tracks from the car window as we drove over a crossing, imagining a train was coming right for us. It reminded me of the runaway train portion of the tram ride at Universal Studios from the one supremely memorable time we went there as a family in the 70s. My dad loved trains too, especially steam engines with tall smokestacks spewing blackened clouds backwards down the length of their cars and caboose. He took us to Travel Town, which was disappointing, the Lomita Railroad Museum, which is pretty cool, and Laws Railroad Museum in Bishop, California, which is really neat. The Model Train Museum in San Diego's Babylon Park, which was utterly amazing, and numerous times on the steam train at Knott's Berry Farm in Disneyland. Whenever he got the chance, my dad tried to introduce my brother and I to his fascination with steam engines and railroad tracks. My dad also loved Christmas. He was not a religious man at all, not in those days anyway. But Christmas was his favorite holiday, bar none. From the stories he told us as kids, I was under the impression that he felt abandoned by his parents when he was forced to attend a boarding school in his youth in the Great Depression. Because of this experience, he set out to make sure his own children always had a great time at Christmas and were never sent away. Still, he must have had a memorable Christmas at some point, with a train and a Christmas tree involved somehow. I was sure of it, since my dad never told me directly. In my mind, this is how my dad's favorite childhood his Christmas memory went. When he was a young boy, his family placed an electric train around the Christmas tree. He recalled in deep reverie, getting on the floor and watching the train travel around under the glowing lights of the tree. He watched it for hours. He recalled the memory often. To him, it seemed like trains and childhood were inextricably tied, and there was a train-shaped hole in his heart that he was always trying to fill. I figured this must have been one of his fondest memories. However, he never told us any stories about having a train of his own. I just figured this is how it must have occurred. What other explanation could there have been? A train around a Christmas tree? As far as I was concerned, it was my dad's own personal rosebud. Yearly, right after Thanksgiving, my dad posted a piece of paper to the refrigerator with everyone's name on it. We were all encouraged to put our Christmas wishes on the list for everyone to see. This became a family tradition that lasts 40 years, with our wives and kids' names added to the list as they joined the family in the ensuing decades. My dad also loved Christmas decorations, and the annual sojourn with my brother and I to locate the perfect Christmas tree was one of our favorite trips of the year. My dad's love of Christmas even extended to presents, where, oddly, he did not join my mom buying presents for his kids. My parents were married and lived in the same house, but instead, bought his own set of presents to put under the tree himself. As an adult, I didn't realize this was weird until my wife gently told me otherwise. When my brother and I were suitably old enough, the inevitable happened. My dad's love of Christmas and his love of trains clashed. It started when we were six years old in 1976, when my granny, his mom, with obvious coaching from my dad, bought my brother and I an N-scale model train for Christmas. At the time, HO was the standard scale for model trains. N-scale, the next size down, was petite in comparison to HO, and I instantly fell in love with it. 
The footprint of the track was small enough to fit on a card table in our compact living room. After we set it up, my brother and I watched the tiny train travel through its double oval track for hours. I looked on with fascination as the mechanical and electric met on the brushed nickel railroad tracks. I loved the idea that I could design my own tracks, fitting them together with switches to alter the course and control the flow of the train cars. It was a system of elegant, modular simplicity that could be used to create infinite combinations. I did not know it yet, but model trains were my first introduction to the world of design and engineering. In the evening time, I often found myself sitting on a chair, laying my head on the table, and watching the train whiz by with the blinking lights and the Christmas tree as backup. It was in those quiet moments that I felt like anything was possible, and at the same time, nothing would ever change. In the months after Christmas that year, my dad took my brother and I around to the local model railroad shops. This was the mid-1970s, when model railroading was still a viable business for brick-and-mortar walk-in traffic. Within a five-mile radius of our house, there were at least a half-dozen stores that sold exclusively products for model railroaders. These stores were not for kids. You might find kids inside, but for the most part, they contained graying old men who took their hobby very seriously. What we discovered in those first few months of 1977 was that that, while N-scale trains were compact, cool, and efficient, they were also expensive and hard to find. HO scale is 187 scale, which means that the cars and scenery are 87 times smaller than in real life. By comparison, a Hot Wheels car is 164 scale, or 64 times smaller than real life. N scale, smaller than HO scale, is 1 160th scale, or 160 times smaller than real life. The only thing smaller at the time was Z scale, which is 1 to 220 scale, or 220 times smaller than real life. Smaller in this case meant more intricate and more expensive. In the mid-1970s, HO scale had become the standard. While N-scale was still mildly popular, it took three or four times the effort and cost to build a model railroad at such a small size. Even so, the N-scale train and the few pieces of scenery we could afford were good for a couple years. My brother and I played with it, racing the engine forward and backward around the track for hours until one day, one of the wheels broke off and the fun was over. After that, the train, the cars, and the scenery were put in a box and put into the garage, and I thought that would be the end of model trains for my brother and I. While I liked them, other things had caught my attention. Kenner had a full line of Star Wars toys by 1978, and my brother and I were full-on fanatics for the franchise. With our Christmas list on the refrigerator filled with things like action figures, Millennium Falcons, Death Stars, and R5-D4s, there's little room for the electric model trains my dad so much wanted us to love. However, Dad was still not ready to give up. For Christmas 1978, he went far off the refrigerator list and gave my brother and I an HO scale Tyco model train set with an IOU for HO scale model train scenery. My dad was a notorious bargain shopper, and the year before he had noticed something significant. All the after Christmas sales at major retailers were filled with HO scale model train products. Unlike our tiny, beloved, yet notoriously expensive N scale train, it appeared that HO scale trains were cheap and in abundance, especially as part of after Christmas sales. This gave him an idea. 
His plan for the next Christmas was for my brother and I to accompany him the day after Christmas to all the stores at the Del Amo Fashion Center in Torrance, California to buy twice as many HO scale model train accessories as he could normally afford. Since the sales were 50% off or more the year before, he figured he would get twice as much or more to build an amazing HO scale train layout. It was a good plan, but the world doesn't always honor good plans. The major problem with my dad's plan was that the after Christmas sales the year before did not just occur because stores had overstocked on model train toys. They occurred because kids in 1978 were just not into model trains anymore. Some kids were playing Atari video games at home, some asking for Lego, some playing with Star Wars figures. There was little room in the toy chest for traditional toys like model trains. So for Christmas 1978, most stores stopped carrying HO scale trains altogether. We spent the better part of the day after Christmas in the rain searching the back aisles of discount stores like Woolworths, Zodis, and the Treasury for any HO scale train accessories we could find. It was an agonizing trip, as it appeared that only the oddest and least wanted pieces of HO scale train scenery were left in the already dwindling surplus stock. By the time we were done for the day, we had discovered enough random stuff, cattle rail cars, an automatic crossing for a non-existent road, 1930s people sitting on benches, a set of scale modern 1970s automobiles, fruit trees, and a ton of track pieces to make a reasonable yet totally random model train layout. My brother and I built and rebuilt the Tyco train track on the living room floor over the course of Christmas vacation, while my dad watched with interest peaked, and I imagine satisfaction that his plan, even with its obvious downfalls, had worked reasonably well. As my mom got more and more annoyed by us taking up the entire living room floor with the HO scale train over Christmas break, my dad promised that he would build us a train table where we could have a permanent layout. Train tables were not an uncommon thing at the time. My friend Alex's dad, a Danish engineer, built an amazing train table in their garage, and my friend Brian Hill's dad was in the midst of building one too. The back of the Sears Woosh book had a page of pre-built tables with exciting curves and tunnels and hills which often flashed in my dreams. However, even though my dad had the best intentions, the logistics of his idea to build a train table were not fully baked. There really was no place in our tiny house or stuffed garage to put a train table large enough to hold an HO scale train layout. In the same way, my dad planned for many things that he never pulled off. He drew up all sorts of plans and ideas about where to put and how to create a table for an HO scale train set. He was great at coming up with designs for things. He was a master at it. Execution, on the other hand, that was not a strong suit. He designed folding ping pong style tables, tables that lowered from the ceiling, and even additions to the house that included rooms for an HO scale train layout. The designs were all very well thought out, very detailed, and had one major aspect in common. None of them were even remotely possible. Part 2 Atari Christmas Christmas 1981 permanently altered the dynamics in our house in ways I would not fully understand until many years later. It was the year Atari first entered our house. After dropping hints for several years by way of the Sears catalog, visits to Toys R Us, strategically placing copies of Electronic Games magazine that my parents could see around the house, coupled with the large retail price cuts for video game consoles that year, my mom and dad finally came through and got us pretty much the only thing we ever really truly wanted in our lives, an Atari 2600 VCS. 
It was a glorious feeling to finally have an Atari machine in the house. It was magical, really, and I recall in the days after Christmas, standing close enough to smell the pine needles, staring at the blinking lights of our family Christmas tree, thinking just how amazing and wonderful life could be, especially in this modern era when I could have my own video game console in my own living room. Sometimes I think of that Christmas as a defining moment in my life, when everything came together, came into focus, and nothing was the same afterwards. But what I never realized until much later was that for my dad, it must have felt like the end of something. Instead of running out to buy model trains with my dad the day after Christmas, as we had done a few years earlier, we ran out with my mom and my sister to buy new cartridges for our video game system. The HO scale trains stayed in their box near the Christmas ornaments all winter break. We played Asteroids, Breakout, Tennis, and Laser Blast on the living room TV as my dad sat back and watched with feigned interest from across the room. It was obvious that, not for the lack of effort on his part, the plan to have his sons inherit a love of model trains did not play out the way he intended. While we liked trains alright, he loved them. At 11 years old, we had become Lego fanatics, Star Wars fanatics, and video game fanatics. To us, model trains were a fascinating technological step onto greater things like playing video games and programming computers. So as my dad did his entire life, when things did not go his way, he took matters into his own hands. Almost 40 years later, I can only imagine the circumstances that drove this event. It probably went something like this. As he sat and watched the same blinking lights of the Christmas tree as I from the couch that year, punctuated by the primitive video game sounds emanated from the TIA chip inside the Atari VCS connected to the TV, an idea came over him. The video game sounds and the sight of his kids mesmerized by the pixels flashing on the TV screen must have been as foreign to him as his stories about World War II and boarding schools in the Great Depression were foreign to us. That day he decided he had to take action to bring things back into focus, to build something he could grasp and control. He was inspired then to create one of the most industrious, marvelous things he ever conceived. A couple days after Christmas that year, my dad entered the garage to start work on something new. He did not tell anyone about his plans. He just went in and got to work. I still recall with great fondness the sound of my dad working in the garage. The noises of the bandsaw, the grinder, the drills, hammers, and the AM radio talk shows. Each sound distinctive, yet in my mind's ear from a cacophony of reverie and remembrance that will be with me the rest of my life. It was warm comfort to hear from the living room, even as my brother and I blissfully battled asteroids and each other in simulated combat. When my dad was in the garage working on something, all was right with the world. Part 3 HO Scale Dreams. Before my brother and I were born, my dad created a permanent stand for our yearly Christmas tree. It included a round base, four feet in diameter, attached with a wood box, open at the top, that housed a plastic bucket for water. Four large bolts could be screwed in from all four sides to hold a tree in place. It was one of the few garage projects that actually worked and had all the hallmarks of my dad's craftsmanship. Impressively functional, yet a total eyesore hated by my mom. Every year after the cuss words were done flying out of his mouth and around the living room as he set up the tree, my mom would quickly cover up the base with a white sheet to make it look like the bottom of the tree was covered in snow. This is how every Christmas had gone 
as long as I could remember. Like the ritual went, my brother and I always went with my dad two weeks before Christmas to get a Christmas tree that would fit into his homemade stand. There are lots of factors we had to take into consideration. The height of the tree to fit into our low ceiling house and the total diameter to fit in the requisite spot by the front window in the living room. Plus the length of the trunk, the thickness of the trunk, the clearance between the bottom of the trunk and the first branch to fit in the stand. We left early in the morning and drove all around the South Bay until my dad could find the best tree at the best bargain price. More than 20 bucks for a tree? What a total ripoff, my dad would say in multiple ways after leaving several Christmas tree lots until we finally found the perfect mix of bargain and tree shape. After my mom placed the sheet under the tree to cover up my dad's functionally ugly tree stand, it was time to decorate the tree in the house. The cardboard box with Xmas scribbled on the side and red pen was pulled from the garage. The old string of highly flammable incandescent lights, some blinked, most did not, was strung around the already dying pine needles. The box of random glass bulbs and homemade ornaments were strung from the branches. Finally, our creepy proto-elf on a shelf looking stuffed elf brother and sister were placed on the windowsill next to my dad's homemade Santa sleigh carved from a piece of styrofoam. Christmas 1982 started in the exact same way, but when we finally found a tree and took it home that year, my dad changed his routine a little bit. Instead of going right to the garage to saw off the bottom of the tree, then drill a hole in the trunk so it would fit into the Christmas tree stand, he went to the garage and shut the door behind him. By that time in my life, I'd clued in to the fact that there was not always a lot of output from my dad's time spent in the garage. A lot of time and energy went into his special projects, but they didn't always pay off as something physical. His job at Hughes Aircraft was drafting fittings for housings for multi-billion dollar military equipment, which meant he was good at creating analog boxes, angles, and connectors. And when those things were involved, the project usually worked. He was an artist by trade, but fancied himself a craftsman. The problem was that he did not always have the patience or resources to produce the ideas in his head, something I've inherited from him in spades. So, the finished product did not always live up to his expectations. For instance, he once repurposed an old 50s radio speaker to plug into the TV headphone jack to increase the volume so he could hear the TV with his ever-failing right ear. He was sure the sound was better when the speaker was plugged in, but none of us could hear any difference. All we knew was that we were forced to have an ugly old speaker on top of our TV while he lived in the illusion that the sound was amplified. After a few weeks, he realized his error and the speaker disappeared forever. After the Christmas tree was put in place in Christmas 1982, I expected everything to be the same as always. The ugly tree stand, the white sheet, the dangerously blinking string of lights, the homemade ornaments, the scary elf siblings, and the styrofoam sleigh without reindeer. However, even before the Xmas labeled cardboard box was brought into the house that year from the garage, my dad came to the screen door and asked for some help. My brother and I were trading turns fighting asteroids and ICBMs on the TV screen, looking forward to getting some new games like Vanguard and River Raid for Christmas that year. We were not really prepared for what happened next. Hey boys, can one of you come and hold the screen door for me? It was my turn with the joystick, so my brother Jeff jumped up to help my dad. There was no question that one of us would help him. There was no complaints about helping either. Of course it would help. It was something we did, regardless of circumstances. As my brother held open the screen door on the side of the house, my dad rolled in a giant board with something on it that looked like a large, round, white mountain. Then my dad stood in the living room holding the board and spoke. Boys, I need your help to fit this under the Christmas tree. And then my brother and I saw what he was holding. It was his secret project. It was a circular N-scale model railroad track laid on a wood base with a section cut out in the back the length of two pieces of N-scale railroad track. In the middle of the track was a set of paper mache mountains rounded so they formed a hole on top that could hold the trunk of a Christmas tree. 
A little Christmas village lined the track, with powdered snow topping each of the tiny buildings. The train base was designed to slip over the round wooden Christmas tree base he had built years before, until it fit snug, under the tree, but above the base. A perfect fit. With the main portion positioned, he reached around the back and fitted a curved section of wood in place that had two pieces of N-scale railroad track attached to the top. With the section secured, hidden behind the tree, the circular track was complete. He plugged in the N-scale train controller and started the train, and my brother and I stood there stunned. It was glorious. For every shitty speaker, exposed wire, terrible paint job and jerry-rigged repair he had made in our 12 years on earth this stood above them all not in a bad way but in a good one it was like every ounce of effort every drop of fortitude and every bit of imagination had been poured into this creation when the lights were strung on the tree the ornaments hung and all the little weird decorations placed around the living room darkness had fallen he kept the lights off in the living room lit the tree and started the train the blinking string lights made the christmas village come alive with wonder it was like the tree above the village was the whole of the christmas sky with pure wonder and joy floating above it was beautiful. The tiny train circled the tree about a half foot off the ground, passing the Christmas village every 20 seconds or so. The little light on the end scale engine punctuated the darkness every time it came around the track to visit. Bathed in the warm glow of the light from the tree, the train and the village looked perfect. My dad's boyhood dream come true, and the one his boys could not ignore. Here, in one fell swoop, my dad laid to rest the ghosts of his own Christmas past. He finally had his Christmas train, and he had created the train table he so badly wanted to make for his sons, but seemed so elusive for so long. It was something we could not ignore, nor could we put it in a box and forget about it ever again. The tree stand and running N-Scale Railroad remain part of our family Christmas for the next 25 years. Part 4, HO Scale Dementia. Recently, when I look at photos from Christmas 2006 taken at my mom and dad's house, I notice one thing that's missing, the Christmas train stand. Even after my brother and I grew up and moved out, my dad kept it running for many years. On our yearly Christmas visits, my kids and the kids of my siblings were fascinated with it. They too loved the little snow top buildings, the mountain, the track, and how it seemed to exude Christmas cheer just from its mere existence. Even after it stopped working sometime in the early 2000s, my dad kept using it as the base for his Christmas tree. I don't recall the events that led up to the N-scale Christmas tree stand being removed completely from the tree. It could have been my sister's new cat knocked around the train, or to protect the new baby, my third child, or just from the age of the track and the train. But by that time, stand had fallen into disrepair and only looked like a shadow of its former self. I do know that it was gone between Christmas 2005 and 2006 and that something very significant happened to my dad very soon afterward. In June 2007, he was starting to show the signs of dementia taking hold. At that point, none of us really knew the extent of his condition or how far it would go. But the signs started with a curious occurrence in his bedroom. 
Much like the winter of 1981, he began a secret project that would change his life forever. He initiated this project by removing nearly everything from his room that was not nailed down. He left his dresser, his closet filled with Civil War books, his bed and a filing cabinet. Everything else, desk, DVDs, chair, card table, nightstand, his father's paintings, gifts, games, ephemera, and odds and ends from his 79 years of living ended up in the garage or stowed away inside the Lance camper on the back of his Toyota pickup truck. What was left was an 8 by 10 foot space in the middle of his room. After the way was cleared, he drove to Home Depot and bought some nails, metal bolts, and a bunch of wood of different sizes, long boards, 2x4s and 4x4s. He took it all to his room, shut the door, and began working. No one in the family really knew what he was doing. Since I had long since moved out with my two little kids and a tiny baby to look after, I could not spend much time reviewing his efforts or his plans. However, I was happy that he had found something to occupy himself beyond listening to political talk radio on his bed for hours upon hours every day. One Sunday, soon after, on a visit to my parents' house, I spied an interesting stack of magazines on the coffee table in my parents' living room. On closer inspection, they were not magazines at all, but catalogs for Bachman trains. Model trains. Then it hit me. My dad was finally building his real train table, the same table he'd been planning in his head and on paper for 30 years. He had never found room for it except for the tree stand. So now he made room by emptying his bedroom. At first, while my dad was still fairly coherent, the train table seemed like a good idea. The grandkids got a chance to see their grandfather working on a grand project like he had done when we were kids, and it would keep his mind and hands occupied for many hours each day. The table took up the majority of his room, and it was truly the only space he had for it. The house was still as small as it ever was, plus the flood of stuff from 40 years of raising four kids and four grandchildren never receded enough to let him build anything in the garage. The only space he had left was right where he was building, in the middle of his bedroom. My dad spent the first 18 months or so working on the train table proper, as it was a masterwork of engineering and space planning. Using all the skills he had built as a draftsman at Hughes Aircraft, he cut the wood perfectly to fit in his tiny space, creating supports and brackets to hold everything in place, while still allowing room to get under the table and work on wiring and mechanics. Sections were hinged so they could be fitted and replaced to get at the hard-to-reach corners and spaces. He planned everything for maximum accessibility and ease of use. The design and engineering prowess he invested resembled the Christmas tree train stand, just on a much grander scale. To be honest, it was far over-engineered for being a mere table. He treated it like it was his magnum opus, the final culmination of everything he ever wanted to create but never had the time to finish. When the table was complete, he did not jump right into building a train layout. Instead, he studied the Bachman catalogs along with a host of other model railroading books and magazines he had piled in his room. He wanted all the trappings of his dream model train. A steam engine, old west town, long tunnel, a mountain, a river, and a picturesque desert landscape. He also wanted it done the right way and no one was rushing him. When he finally began the building process, it was slow, measured, and steady. He laid the perfect track on the perfect track bed. Then he built a massive mountain and tunnel. He painted an intricate backdrop that hung on his wall to give the layout a sense of space and grandeur. It was an impressive sight to behold, a man finally making what appeared to be the thing he was always meant to build. A couple years into the project in 2008, my dad made an attempt to drive to a DMV appointment to get his license renewed. 
but he never made it. He got lost and circled the streets of the South Bay for hours until he finally made his way home. It scared the crap out of him, and he never drove a car again. After that, the signs of dementia began to arrive in a steady flood. He lost his ability to say names and numbers or complex ideas. Instead, he would just count on his fingers and use hand motions to try to describe anything beyond simple expressions. He was a man of few words that became a man of fewer. Then in turn, the train layout took a bizarre twist. As my dad lost his ability to communicate, it seemed that he turned to trying to express himself through the train table. The table morphed and changed from its original design. It became literally everything to him. He carefully placed objects all around the table that signified things to him. Toy cars, dolls, trophies, a model ship pictures of his grandkids and his family from the 20s and 30s. He painted a massive amount of scale figures, but instead of making them realistic, they were all the same color. It was obvious the table had become an extension of his deteriorating brain function. In 2011, with my dad's health in speedy decline, I asked him questions about his childhood. I wanted to get some of his final thoughts saved before they passed from him for eternity. He talked to me in very short, stilted bursts. The dementia that was eating his brain stole his words, but not his thoughts. He painfully recounted stories to me with a mix of syllables, grunts, and those aforementioned hand gestures. Because I knew the basic facts already, it was easy to pick up what he was trying to say. At one point, he recalled something he had never told me before. With a wave of a hand and pointing at the train table, he described what it was like to be a small boy sent away from everything he knew to live at that boarding school in the 1930s. I'd heard these stories many times before, but this time it really hit me. In the same way that he, getting my brother and I an Atari 2600 in 1981, was a defining moment of our lives. Being sent away at such a young age was a defining moment of his. He never got over this one single event. Without telling him what was happening, his mom drove him down to the end of a road and wordlessly abandoned him at a strange place that became his home for the next eight years. I already knew that story, but this time the impact was different. The tale he tried to tell me this time was a new one, or at least a new wrinkle of an old one. This story involved a train, and what he told me with few words and many hand movements, with me asking many clarifying questions that resulted in his nodding in approval, was this. There was a steam train that ran down the road from Manumet School. He loved going outside and watching the train go by with a long trail of smoke dragging behind it. He wanted to jump on that train and take it wherever it was going, to get out and go home, to never return to that school. But in reality, he never ever went home again. At that moment, it all became clear. My dad was never reminiscing about the toy train he never got as a child. Toy trains were never his rosebud. And remember, this imagined scenario about my dad I had created in my head 30 years before, when he was a young boy and the family placed the electric train around the Christmas tree, he recalled in deep reverie getting on the floor and watching the train travel around under the glowing lights of the Christmas tree. He watched it for hours. He recalled the memory often. It was one of his fondest memories. To him, trains in childhood were inextricably tied, and there was a train-shaped hole in his heart that he was always trying to fill. Well, that was complete and total bull****. Instead, the entire idea of a train simply meant escape to him.
escaped to a place he knew once but never returned to as a child. As his dementia grew, he went back to that place. He set up a train, then he went about building the perfect place that that train could go. It contained everything he loved. Pictures of his family, artifacts, toys, western regalia, Civil War forage caps, cowboys, Indians, and even little scale Christmas trees. And he circled himself with it. It encased him, surrounding him in his bedroom. And there he created his place to escape to. Locked in his own head, his brain deteriorating from dementia, he reverted back to the one thing that made him feel free and alive his entire life. Trains. A few weeks after my recording session, my dad completely succumbed to his dementia. No longer able to move or speak, he laid in his hospital bed in the living room of his house, away from his train table, waiting for what was next. The last time I visited, I sat on the bed, talking to him, as he listened and responded in the meekest way imaginable. A few whispers, a few hand motions, but little else. In the middle of our conversation, he sat up suddenly, pointed out the living room window towards the trees in the front yard, and said in the clearest words he had spoken in months, Those people there, those people going by, they want me to come along. Then he laid back down and never said another word to me. Two days later, he was gone. I have no way of knowing exactly what he saw outside the window, but I choose to imagine that it was the Christmas train steaming by, the passengers waving him to join them on their never-ending trip around the base of our Christmas tree. Like I said at the beginning, train tracks feel like the stuff of life to me. Be they outside a bedroom window, just down the road from a co-op boarding school, on a card table, on a living room floor, on a bedroom-sized train table, or circling magically under the blinking lights of a family Christmas tree. They stretch long into an unseen distance, appear never-ending, yet always travel to a known and inevitable destination.
Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. Into the vertical blank.